Hey, we're back. Hey. Um, it was a week for you. It's been about 10 minutes for us. But uh, now it's time for part two of our discussion of this Buckwild trilogy, uh, the, the East Rail 177 Unbreakable Verse. That's right. It's been 10 minutes, and now you all know how long it takes Dalton to pee. That's right. If you've tuned in for the first time on this very episode, uh, last week we did uh, the first part of one of our mega-sodes over a trilogy of films. We've done this a couple of times in the past. Uh, we started with Spider-Man uh, last year. I uh, had a lot of fun with that and thought we'd work these into our uh, repertoire every once in a while. And so last week we doubled down on our uh, review portion of the show where we really kind of talked about what we liked, didn't like about the three entries in this Unbreakable slash East Rail 177 trilogy of Unbreakable, Split, and Glass. Uh, and now we're going to do the uh, the part you all paid for. Well, you didn't pay for, but that's why you uh, came to the show. The part where it's not a review show, it's an analysis show. That's right. Yeah. So here we go. We're going to expand the syllabus now. So you're teaching a class in which you have assigned the entire East Those Rail 177 trilogy. Um, and they've all had to watch this, and you're going to make them watch more things or read more things because you don't want your students to sleep. You are a terrible, terrible, sadistic madman. You yourself are a supervillain as a professor and are now doing that thing to your kids. Um, you're a very bad person. So, Arthur, be the bad man. Tell us, how do we expand the syllabus? The thing I'm most interested in, I think, with this trilogy of films is this idea of heroism and having kind of these powers thrust up on you and how you react to that. And that's always kind of interested me because so many times in comics, you know, when a person gets superpowers, oh, they're going to become a superhero. And it's something David Dunn struggles with quite a bit of, you know, is this even real? Is this mm -hmm. even true? You know, do I use these powers for good? You know, do I use this at all or do I just let my life go on? Um, and it's just a fascinating concept to me. So I've, I've got two movies uh, that really play with that idea, and they both kind of go the opposite direction because I think with human nature for a lot of people, uh, I, I think if you were given this unwilled, uh, you know, this this unbridled power to just do whatever you wanted, yeah. few people would actually probably choose to be superheroes. That might be the cynic in me. It probably is. I, I, I know there are probably people out there that would do good and do just and, and be on the side of righteousness. Uh, but I think by and large, you know, especially for kids um, who have been bullied or upset or just kind of have the, the wrong cards dealt to them, they, they may not be as positive. And so I, I really think Chronicle and Brightburn are, are two that I would kind of put into conjunction with this to kind of explore this idea of heroism and being granted powers. Uh, I, I think Chronicle really plays with this line well as uh, Dane Dehan's character tries to wrestle with his place in this new world that he's been uh, set apart in where he has got these new powers um, and his family life and his societal standing at the school um, really forced his hand to uh, strike out and strike back against those who have wronged him or upset him. And I think it's just a really interesting study in that. And I think Josh Trank really brings it together in a fascinating way. Um, and uh, I think it pulls it off and explores those questions in some unique ways. And, and similarly, Brightburn does things uh, in a similar nature. Um, it's produced by James Gunn, so it's got that attached to it. Um, and it kind of plays in the schlocky B B film avenue. Um, but it, uh, it, it's exploring some of those things and, and it posits that 
you know, nurture versus nature may not really have an impact on that because you could have a good family. Uh, you could have good values. And uh, once you realize you can't be stopped from doing what you want, you won't be stopped from doing what you want. And I think it's just an interesting question to play with and one that doesn't get played with a lot in superhero films. Um, and so those would be the, the two, I think, primary texts I'd, I'd go with in conjunction to uh, this this trilogy, especially with Unbreakable. Um, and I, I think likewise, just because I'm really fascinated by it, and I think it's another interesting one in conjunction with Split and Glass uh, in particular where there's a lot of interesting ideas, but a lot of times can be very messy. And that's Josh Trank's Fantastic Four. Um, oh, wow. Okay. I, uh, is the movie good? No. <laughs> but Josh Trank does this very David Cronenberg body horror thing with this film and sets it up in many ways as a horror film at, at points. And, and it's really interesting and has some interesting concepts, I think. Uh, and it's just much like these films goes off the rails in times that really hampers what it could do. Um, but I think it's worth kind of looking at and talking about it, uh, to some extent. And so I think those would be the movies I would want to pair with this. I, I wish I'd had some time to do some more research to bring something other than movies, uh, because I'd, I'd like to move away from doing that only, but, uh, this week, that's what I've got for you. All right. Well, I think that's a good expansion and an interesting conversation definitely to be had, uh, about, uh, just what one does when one finds there's power. Uh, Dalton, how would you expand the syllabus? I, I think the, the best entry is going to be to, to kind of divvy up the sections of this theoretical class by each of the movies we're going to be watching, right? So with Unbreakable, you got to pair it with some other explorations of broken or damaged superheroes. So you got, you're going to have to read Watchmen. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I know it's kind of the ur text for this sort of thing, but it's important. It's important to kind of understand when and how we start thinking about this idea in the 1980s of superheroes in a real world, uh, meaning they're going to be flawed and deeply human. Um, so I think that's a great place to start. I think you need to check out Sam Raimi's Dark Man. Uh, I, I think uh, Raimi and Shyamalan share a lot in terms of ha just having weird careers and having kind of idiosyncrasies in terms of their storytelling and their visual style. Uh, so I think Dark Man is going to be a really good pairing with Unbreakable. Uh, I also think you should check out James Gunn's Super, uh, which uh, really kind of is a bridge builder between Split and Unbreakable in terms of doing something different, um, but also the mental illness aspects that uh, kind of rear their head and, and, and super, I think are going to make uh, for fertile ground when we get to split. Uh, and finally, I, I think you got to do Logan. Uh, I know we talk about that movie a ton on this show, but I think that the tortured nature of David Dunn and, again, the, the kind of physical vulnerability that his superhuman character is given throughout this franchise is going to be really helpful uh, when we frame it in the context of Logan. Uh, with Split, I want to kind of look at trauma and fantasy and growing up and how these ideas of growing up around trauma, particularly when that is filtered through a fantasy lens, um, really is f just fertile ground for storytelling. Uh, so first I'm going to start with uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Um, mm. I think uh, both the little child at the beginning of Unbreakable, seeing David Dunn, the, literally the last thing that this child sees is this dude trying to cheat on his wife that he's quasi separated from and then she gets killed in a train crash uh, and then Ani Taylor Joy's entire arc throughout Pan's Labyrinth is how experiencing trauma 
prepares you for danger in some ways. And again, I think that kind of meshes well with uh, Payne's Labyrinth and as well it meshes uh, with Matilda, which I think is just kind of, mm-hmm. is I think a little out of left field maybe, but I, I think it makes uh-huh. sense. I think it makes sense though, it, right? It does. Yeah, it's all, it is all about superpowers and childhood abuse, which is a big part of the storytelling and split and on uh, glass. Uh, both of those films deal with that a lot. And I think Matilda is going to be a good framing for that. I also think you should check out uh, God of war from 2016, 2017, the video game, uh, because it plays so much with the ideas of our, the, the way our, our parental influences shape us kind of the, as Arthur was talking about with Brightburn. Um, th- there is something about when you get children involved in these fantasy worlds, uh, especially the capacity for the parent raising a superpowered being uh, and the stakes being very, very high. I, I think that's going to be an interesting one. And finally, uh, T2, I, I think, is one of the all-time great children thrust into danger movies because it does a really good job of finding that wiggle room of still letting that kid be a kid but not shying away from the things that that child's having to experience by being part of this journey. Uh, finally, when we get to Glass, we got to look at what a complicated weirdo M. Night Shyamalan is, and you're going to have to watch The Happening, uh, Lady in the Water, uh, and Signs. I-, I think you're going to have to watch kind of the smorgasbord of his most thematically interesting and most kind of flawed movies. Um, I-, I know Dustin likes Signs a whole I might lot. I argue against Signs being I flawed. I think Signs has got just some weird choices, I think. I think in the moments, that film always works for me. As a whole, it doesn't entirely work for me. I am insane with anger. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but again, I, I think uh, we got to kind of get you prepared for how weird Shyamalan can get and how specific his interests are. Uh, so I think that's going to prepare you for Glass. So I think, yeah, taking these three sets of... Uh, uh, expanded readings is going to kind of help give each film a little bit of uh, flavor and context. Okay, very good, very good. I think, you know, especially those discussions of the sort of formalism of comics that we see from uh, the Mr. Glass character in Unbreakable, mm. that you need to talk a little bit about the comic form uh, in, in approaching these films. And so the urtext there is Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, mm. uh, which is written in graphic novel form as a academic uh, treatise on what happens there. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the size of eyes and size of heads and relationship to bodies and those kinds of things. And I think those are interesting observations as well that I don't believe were made in that particular uh, book. Um, but there's other stuff that's going on there as well and just uh, ways in which you can do uh, the comic form as a medium of storytelling. And so that's the first place that I would begin. Um, then we're going to talk – I think we've got to get really theoretical here because this – particular set of films is dealing with ideas of trauma it's dealing with ideas of just mental illness it's also dealing with ideas of what you actually want and desire and this is this is all that realm of psychoanalysis jacques lacan and that stuff i would not make them read ecrete or something like that which would be just miserable but slavoj zizek has a great little introduction to lacan called enjoy your symptom exclamation point uh in which he discusses the theories of uh jacques lacan um and uses lots and lots Lots and lots of movies, everything from Charlie Chaplin to The Matrix to Jesus of Nazareth uh, to describe the various aspects of Lacanian theory. And I think that you could use these movies pretty well as a uh, introduction to that. This idea of the wound that remains, this idea of the divided subject, the ideas of jouissance and enjoying your symptom. Uh, those kinds of things are all, I think, 
interesting places to play with the conversation uh, with this. Now, coming back into that idea of trauma itself and the remaining wound mm -hmm. and using art to sort of wrestle with that, James O'Barr's comic uh, series The Crow, I think, would be excellent here. Not the movie, uh, although I love the Brandon Lee movie directed by Alex Proyas. I think uh, O'Barr specifically is dealing with the death of a friend and uh, the anger and the fear and the outrage that goes on with it. And he writes this revenge tale as a way of uh, working out some of those issues. And uh, I think it's an interesting uh, additional point, maybe not a counterpoint, uh, to what we're experiencing in the course of these films. And so that's where I would go with that, because the trauma that Glass suffers is a different trauma than, say, the trauma that Casey suffers, which is a different trauma than, say, the traumas of... Uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Kevin. Kevin, um, which is different from the sort of uh, repression or uh, sublimation that David Dunn's character goes through. And so all of those pieces all sort of work together in a very Lacanian way and also in, in stories of just what do you do when you see a bad thing and how do you handle those sort of things. Uh, so that's uh, a very psychoanalytical approach. Uh, that I would take if I was doing this kind of work. Yeah. I did have one addendum that I wanted to mention. I had thought about it earlier in the week and then forgot, but, uh, it is, uh, it's Arkham Asylum, a serious house on serious earth mm. by Grant Morrison. Good Grant Morrison's so good. Uh, which, uh, posits, uh, Batman being locked into Arkham with his rogues gallery and really questioning his mental state as a character and delving into his psyche. And, uh, Coupled with great illustrations by Dave McKean, uh, it's just a fascinating graphic uh, novel uh, trade collection to to it's look super at, good. Uh, and all kinds of surreal imagery and very fascinating. Where the the imagery really reflects and, and uh, builds on the mental state of the characters, and so I, I'd, I'd like to add that in there as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And Grant Morrison's now working at Heavy Metal these days, um, if you just want to keep up with his stuff these days. And my friend Hannah Mean Shannon is now an editor there, oh, uh, cool. which is kind of cool. Uh, but anyway, uh, very, very good. I like that stuff a lot. So there's your syllabus, dear listener. It just got a bit longer. Let's get down to business. It's business. Wow, there's a lot to talk about. Oh, my word. Is there a lot to talk about? Um, I guess we could talk about – we could do this sort of by film in terms of analytical themes. Yeah, that might be the cleanest way to do it. We can kind of cross over as necessary. So let's talk about formalism in comics and how you know bad guys. Um, and uh, that sort of discussion of the head being large yeah. in proportion to the body, the eyes being extra large. Sam Jackson's got big eyes. And he's got a very big Frederick Douglass haircut in this he movie. He does. <laughs> and his costuming, right? That, yeah. that Those choice, those long trench coats, um, that's that's all sort of keyed into, we're talking to the bad guy here. Mm -hmm. uh, uses the purples yeah. and sort of the, the, the uh, cooler colors. Very ostentatious. Uh, yeah. Got a real pinkin? Kingpin Pinkin. look going for him. Pinkin, the uh, Penguin King. Yes, yeah. <laughs> this is a combination of the two. I'm, I'm a fount of ideas. Oh, there's this great thing in Unbreakable where um, Shyamalan's using color to signify his villains. Mm. And it's not just, you know, it's the color purple with, with glass, but also anytime David Dunn touches somebody who has done something wrong, they're wearing a very bright or the color saturated. Color, yeah, yeah it stands mm. out. We, the guy in camouflage at the arena, uh, multiple people 
uh, in the train yeah. station when he goes, uh, namely the janitor who's wearing this bright orange jumpsuit, mm-hmm. um, which really keys us in. And it's another of those levels uh, that harkens back to letting us know that uh, Elijah's going to be the villain in this story. Um, and I think it's just really cool to uh, see the way that Shyamalan uses color um, because I don't think you necessarily notice it right away. I, I think it's a cool signifier, and if you're paying attention or if you've seen it before, it probably stands out. Um, but it's a subtle way to hint at or allude to uh, these moments. And, you know, using color signifiers is not something we see quite as often. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, And he does it in the village, I believe, as well. He uses color quite a bit yes. there to, to signify things. Um, and it's always really cool when it, when it comes to play, and I, I think it's a really big key to Unbreakable in the way uh, the themes and, and the beats are working there. I think the flashbacks also do something interesting where they even desaturate the other colors even more. And so it's got that sort of Ansel Adams kind of feel where it's black and white except for the blue coat or red jacket or whatever that a particular character um wearing to sort of help your eye be drawn to. Um, similar uh, trick that Steven Spielberg uses with the girl in the red jacket uh, in um, Schindler's List. Yeah, I, I read that th- there was quite a bit of thought in all three of these movies put towards uh, color usage uh, by Shyamalan, which I think is really interesting. I also found it interesting, uh, we're talking about just the structure of this film. Uh, Much has been made about this movie being firmly an origin story and a very grounded one at that, but I thought it was interesting that uh, the Kevin Crumb character um, was in early drafts of Unbreakable, apparently. Uh, There was originally a super-powered physical presence, uh, physical villain in Unbreakable, and then just when Shyamalan realized, no, I just want to do the first act as one super long movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I want that to be the full runtime. You know, they stripped that character out and kind of found a replacement for it in that home invasion story. Yeah, that home invader, though, is kidnapping girls, and so yeah. there is a real similarity. It has a similar color palette to that which Crumb uh, uh, has in the sequel. So it seems like Shyamalan kind of took some of his original ideas for that character and put it in, in that scenario. But yeah, it's interesting to me that uh, that gets ejected and that there is so much time spent on just building out this origin story into a full movie as opposed to letting it be the first act of a film. And I think it's a good choice in I terms of super uh, that that is a good choice. A, a second good choice as well is just to make it this very very grounded superhero. This very um it, it's not the space opera. It's not Captain America or Iron Man and Thor. It's He's not... just strong and can't be killed, right? Except by water. Yeah. And and so I, mean, I find that really interesting. It does feel more like the MCU TV Netflix Defender series. Yeah, um, there's very kind of a Daredevil meets you know Jessica Jones kind of feel um, at work here, and I and I appreciate that quite a bit. Um, and I do think that the groundedness of it invests you a bit more because it yeah. doesn't feel like a superhero even though yeah. he's invulnerable and vulnerability is his power yeah. he is definitely um, vulnerable to die yeah, and uh, and vulnerable to uh, emotional attack as well well I, I think the, that's the great thing about making him just an average joke so many uh, superheroes Marvel DC outside of a few uh, but even like a Peter Parker is so, I mean he's, he's a genius uh, you know Peter Parker is super smart he, he's mm. very uh, above average in that way, and so many characters are already larger than life before they get the power. You know, we've got 
billionaires or we've got scientists or we've got something that already sets them on another level. I mean, you know, even soldiers. Steve Rogers is exceptionally courageous. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's, he's, yes, he's 90 pounds and five foot flat, but he is also not like anybody else I've ever met. Yeah. And so outside of maybe a few, you know, anti hero you know, not even anti, maybe like uh, Winter Soldier, I think Sebastian mm-hmm. Stan, you know, uh, that, that character Bucky before he becomes the Winter Soldier, I think is kind of that everyman type as well. But I think that's really what makes David Dunn so fascinating, and that's what makes that movie to me so fascinating. Is it is so? What you know? What if Dalton went home and found out he had a superpower? You know, Uh-oh. how does he deal with that? You know, I think it's just it has a real reg- a schmuck who starts the movie about to cheat on his this wife. This guy's yeah, he's, he's his home life is falling apart. He's working, you know, the night sh- the 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 arena security. I mean, there's nothing glorified about his life. No, and and this. You know, the the moment he starts to realize he has these powers, he doesn't want he doesn't want to believe it. And I think there's something much more human and such so much more natural and realistic and grounded about that that I think is so much to appreciate uh, in comparison to other comic book movies. Well, and, and it uh, drives him to fight for his old life instead yeah. of to run from it and yep. begin to hide. You know, I mean, that's the opposite yeah. of, the, of the narrative, right? In yeah. a superhero story, you discover you have powers and you begin to hide all that stuff from people. And they're wondering, where are you going out all hours of the night? You know, those kind of things. Yeah. He is now, uh, you know, he's, he's sort of separating from his old life before his realization of powers. And then after that happens, he wants to connect more with his son. He wants to connect more with his wife, which is the opposite. And I think the other thing about this, when we're talking about correlation with a comic book, is this feels very much like a singular issue of a comic story. Somebody, I mean, when you read a comic book, you're not getting the whole thing. You're going to get one piece of this longer narrative. Uh, You know, either might be a tie into a story or four or five parts uh, that are going to be published over the course of a few months. Uh, And this very much feels like just one issue. It is David Dunn, issue number one. Yeah. And that's all we get. You know, the climactic battle is, isn't that big. It's just this home invader that he bumped into. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's so cool about it. It makes it feel more comic booky is in that narrative construction in that, you know, in any Marvel movie, we're not, you know, we're not going to get just Spider-Man gets his origins in the suit and that's it. Yeah. We're, we're, and that's really what this is doing. We're recording this in the wake of Dark Phoenix getting some very bad reviews. And, and a lot of them have made mention that, you know, Dark Phoenix isn't good, and neither was X-Men The Last Stand, because that whole comic saga took place over several years. It was a long time getting from point A to point B in that story and letting it breathe. Uh, and Arthur's right. I think a lot of our traditional superhero movies, especially those based on existing superheroes, uh, they have so much work to do and so much to get through to get you to the status quo of who the superhero is. And again, I think the longer we've been in these cycles, the better, uh, especially the Marvel films have gotten it very quickly and judiciously introducing characters and maybe letting them breathe more in their own movies. But especially a lot of the films that are coming out around the same time as Unbreakable, whether it's uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man or Batman Begins, I think a lot of these films, including Unbreakable, feel like they need to take a lot of time explaining what a superhero is to you. And I think Shyamalan makes the right call to go ahead and, as Arthur said, this is just issue one. Let's spend as much time. Let's go ahead and spend the whole runtime on issue one because you lose that character drama when you're fast forwarding through plot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, other thematic things with Unbreakable. I don't know that I have a whole lot more to deal with it. I want to move on to Split unless you guys are 
feeling real strong about sticking here? No, I, I just want to say that I do like Spencer Treat Clark as the son a lot. Uh, just the way he is influenced by his father and the way that he's trying to bring out the best version of his father and the way that relationship plays is really interesting to me. I think especially when compared to Split and Glass and the roles parents play in both of those films or guardians play in those films, I think is really interesting. Um, and finally, I mean, this is probably the last chance we get to talk about it. Uh, the amount of work that goes into trying to build out the relationship between Robin Wright and Bruce Willis, they don't totally stick it, I don't feel like, but I feel like the film does a good enough job of giving them time together that even those moments where they make choices that don't make a whole hell of a lot of sense, the film's given you enough context that you're allowed to be like, okay, well there's more context here. I don't understand. And we're just not going to get to that. Yeah. So all of that work makes it really frustrating when Robin Wright is divorced off camera from behind with a, an actress double in one scene at the start of glass. It's a little frustrating. I got to say, but I just want to throw a nod out to that before we moved on to Split. I mean, and as we are beginning to make that transition, I guess the last thing that sort of is an overarching thing that would not be at the end, perhaps, but more here at the beginning, would just be auteurism itself, as that these are put together as Shyamalan yeah. movies. And, of course, the artistic, you know, uh, touchstones we've already mentioned on the use of color, um, the use of the twist at the end, um, and those things. And then using it as a marketing thing. I mean, it, it, and it's interesting because it comes a, it comes back. There's a there's a moment where Shyamalan, when he makes Unbreakable, is the Shyamalan of the Sixth Sense that everybody loves and everybody's wanting to see the next Shyamalan thing. And so it is name above the title. It is the auteur of commerce, a commercial auteur. Um, I'll let Timothy Corrigan less so um, than what's his name? Saris. Saris. Andy Saris could not come up with his name just then. Um, it's less so that. But by the time he gets to split and glass he's run through a moment where people were hiding the fact that yeah. Shyamalan was involved in a film you know after earth was like whoa that's a Shyamalan movie uh which thank god it was not associated with him too much because it was a real stinker um but i don't know how much that's his fault and how much that's the studio's fault um but those things happen and then he sort of has this micro resurgence and he returns into auteurism uh, as a marketing tool as well as just simply putting his own stamp, writing his own script, doing his own production and editing and those kind of things um, as well with the film. And so I guess, I don't know if we all want to discuss the auteurism of Shyamalan so much as just simply acknowledge that that's something that's at work here. Yeah, no, I think I think we're right to just acknowledge it and move on. Uh, again, we talked a little bit about his idiosyncrasies on our Patreon content. Um, so yeah, I think we're good. All right, Split. Who boy. Yeah. <laughs> uh... Shyamalan doesn't waste any time getting uh, Haley Lou Richardson's top off, huh? No. It's kind of gross. Male gaze is bad. Yeah. I mean, we just got a big E on the eye chart this real quick, especially because we're going to spend time talking about sexual trauma uh, when yeah. we talk about Split. A film that talks about uh, abuse this much should not have this much uh, young skin. Yeah. And that's really all I feel of the need it's to say It's a weird choice. That's a weird... It just puts the camera in weird places. I don't even know yeah. that he knows he's doing it. It feels like he just... Oh, I'm making a slasher movie, so I'll just shoot it like a slasher movie. And he doesn't seem to have any real understanding of why that might not be a kosher thing to do. There are times and places where you can do it. You can get away with it, where it's actually empowering. But this is not one of them. It's disempowering and just nasty. Um, so, yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm not a fan at all of that. Let's talk about DID. Um, oh. So there's a real mental illness. 
hotly contested, hotly. Uh, not always included in the DSM. Uh, disassociative identity disorder, um, formerly known as multiple personality disorder. Uh, it's complicated, and uh, none of us are going to talk about it like we're experts because we're super not. But uh, yeah, it is a real thing, and it's a real thing with a lot of baggage. Right. Uh, talking about it in terms of its clinical study and its you know its diagnosis, it's hotly contested even in the community of mental health professionals uh, whether or not it is a legit- legitimate diagnosis still. So to have it be such a big factor of this film, and also have somebody playing a psychiatrist say a whole bunch of bullshit uh, that is not true about this disorder that is, again, the film acknowledges controversial, to say the least. It's a bad look. And it just... Again, there's enough smart people... We talked about this in part one, but there's enough smart people who study DID and enough people who suffer from DID talking about feeling like this film is going to set back the cultural view of people with severe mental illnesses and create a stigma of violence... It's not good. I mean, it, it, it's the Buffalo Bill choice. Especially, yeah. And yeah. again, it, that film pays lip service to getting around its thorny issues. Uh, so the film knows better. And I, I would say Split knows better less than Silence of the Lambs, but seems to know better a little bit. Because mm-hmm. it does try to pay lip service to being like, oh, we're doing a thing here. Well, it's like a whole subplot in the film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we spend time at a Skype conference. Yeah. And I, I do like what Shyamalan's doing with the concept of this character having a, I guess, superpower uh, to have mm-hmm. these multiple identities within himself. I, I think, you know, giving it a name that is a name of a real disorder uh, that is highly contested is where the issue comes in. But the way it's presented in this film, it's very x man in that this, mm-hmm. you know, here's the mind we don't fully understand how powerful the mind truly is. What if it was capable of, you know, presenting a person with these multiple things, changing and they could body tap, chemistry. Yeah, yeah. And they could tap into that to change body chemistry, to become indestructible, to be able to perform superhuman feats. And I think that idea is very well laid out and constructed and very well conceived. I think it just shoots itself in the foot by presenting itself as a true disorder and giving itself a, a true name. I think avoiding that might have kept it a little more gray, at least. Mm-hmm. It, it's, I, I think it works as an expansion of the themes in Unbreakable, right? Because, you know, David Dunn's character has so much doubt about being a superhero, doesn't want to be a superhero, and to have his villain be a character that firmly believes that they are what they, they believes it without a doubt. Mm-hmm. is Not and, only does he believe it, three versions of him believe it, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, so it is an interesting, like, outgrowth of the themes in Unbreakable, for sure. It just is icky. Yeah. And I, I think it really hurts the film's overall, the the quality of its message, or at least its ability to navigate tone, maybe. Yeah, I, I think the truth that sort of hides a lie is this just idea, and this doesn't, I mean, you don't have to have trauma for this to happen, where um, in certain situations you just put on different selves. Yeah, you know there 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 are times when you are a different part, different aspect of your own self. You are a divided subject, and so that might be because of the role that you have to find yourself in in a social situation, or when certain cues happen in your life, you know, or your your sort of your certain stimuli uh, occur that um, your you know, your body chemistry changes because you're 
your endocrine system begins to dump adrenaline or you know mm. uh, serotonin or um, and endorphins or whatever it happens to be, and that does alter who you are as a person. And that is that's a thing that's real. We all experience that, and we know that there are moments when you know we can talk about you know uh, you know use of recreational substances or whatever that you know you're a different person. That's you know again quasi true. Um, and, but then to sensationalize, and again, this is a science fiction, you know, fantasy kind of story. So I, I expect that kind of stuff. To yeah. Happen. Especially once you know, it's in this realm of the unbreak, the movie unbreakable. You're like, oh, well, okay, I guess. Yeah. But it really buries the lead on that. If yeah, you does. don't know what's coming. Uh, and it's just frustrating. And I, I think the buried lead is the problem. Yeah. I mean, frankly, if it was like this superhero story, I'm like, okay, well, this isn't real anyway. Yeah. You know, okay, we're going to ground this. I mean, we're, we're speaking in language. You know, we're setting this in the United States. You know, there's they're all talking English. So, yes, of course, we're going to use some terms that are sort of familiar to sort of explain some of what's going on here. Um, you know, when you start talking about gamma radiation, the Incredible Hulk, no, that's not how gamma rays work. But... Whatever, you know, you, you sort of let the science slide because you know what you're in for. In this case, you don't. And that is a little bit more messy, you know, when you do that. So here's the thing I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the reason why um, Casey gets spared and the reason why the beast is there. So the the story is um, terrible abuse and trauma is what Kevin Crumb suffered, which creates all 23 of his various split personalities. Um, Casey um, also uh, experienced sexual abuse at the hand of her uncle and also physical abuse uh, that happens thereafter, and it's been continuing, and she continues to live with him at this point in her life as a teenager. And I'm... This is something that frustrates me. Mm-hmm. I, I love the idea, the sort of meme-ish, ex, you know, uh, empowering kind of thing that people say that you know your greatest trauma can be your greatest strength, and those kind of things. And uh, you know, I recognize that, and I I, I I find that to be true personally. At the same time. That is such a minimization of the suffering, and it makes it look like someone who is at times, and maybe for extended periods of times, utterly debilitated by their trauma, as somehow just someone who can't, you know, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, you know, take the lemons and make lemonade. That's it's a real empty platitude. Yeah, it really, it really, really puts my panties in a twist. Um, and 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 this movie is guilty of that, and I don't. I was more angry about it before. I think I've managed to uh, mitigate some of my anger about this a little bit right now. But it's just flatly not true, and it minimizes the real sort of – again, the, the, the nuance and messiness of trauma. Yeah, the, the, the fact that it explicitly goes out of its way to show some of the grooming that Casey endured uh, at the hands of her uncle before an assault happens, yeah, the fact that she, her first advice to one of her friends who's about to be taken into a, a room by herself is – to pee on herself like these very realistic very grounded things uh that if if you've spent any time reading about or talking about trauma you you know that these are grounded in in real expressions and real experiences the fact that it is so tasteful at these other points and then in the 11th hour goes ah yes the broken are the more evolved which is again an interesting idea to be exploring an interesting idea for your villain to be espousing mm-hmm but I just don't I'm I'm kinda with you, Dustin. I don't know that the film by making Casey the superhero of her group, 
uh, yeah, it gets kind of minimizing, right? Yeah, trauma doesn't give you superpowers. No. I mean, that's the thing. And sure, it doesn't make Casey hyper-aware and able to know when and how she can try to manipulate Kevin's personalities. Sure, absolutely. It makes it interesting and makes it her character make perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Her character makes perfect sense. But yeah, it, it it's icky. Well, I, mean, I think you said once, uh, when we dis- uh, more than once, when we've discussed feminism, that a pedestal is just another kind of a cage. Yeah. And this this seems to firmly lock trauma victims into the cage of, well, now you're responsible to be the strongest, most willful, most understanding, you know, and most clear-headed of a person, which, um, frankly, the, the results of trauma are the opposite of that oftentimes. Yeah. And uh, that does – and it, it, it removes – What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the, the the grace or the uh, sort of excuse of kind of being a mess. That sometimes we you need to be a mess, and that 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 messiness is something that's not expected. That that, that that's the misuse of your trauma. Yeah, and it's alluded to that that Casey is a mess, but you know that in the real world, quote unquote. Um, she's perceived as this, you know, troublemaker and this kid that gets in detention. We, you know, we find out she is because she's trying to avoid going home. Right. And so, yeah, the film lets her have flaws, but not in a way that feels connected to the rest of the film. Right. And so, yeah, really, really put my panties in a twist. I was like, no, 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 no. This is not okay. Um, so that's, that's the main thing I wanted to say there. Uh, thematically, analytically, regarding split. Do we have anything else that we want to discuss there? No, we should get get onto this insanity that is glass. We really should. Okay, glass. So, um, yeah, yeah. And my Shyamalan's still not making the movie you want him to. No, and I like how this is not a superhero movie. I mean, we can do, we can just go there now, right? Well, I also like the continued through line of the importance of parents, right? Uh, Mrs. Price, Elijah's mother, gets a lot more to do here than she did in Unbreakable, and I think. It's a great through line because the relationship between uh, Bruce Willis and Spencer Treat Williams, uh, Spencer Treat Clark, Treat mm-hmm. Williams, somebody else, somebody Spencer else. Spencer Treat Clark uh, is such a big part. His son is what makes him be a superhero, right? I mean, that's that love, that relationship yeah. is what inspires yeah. him. Whereas Kevin's relationship with his mother is what made him a supervillain, and it is Elijah's relationship with his mother in Glass that is allowing him to find his purpose again but also redeem himself in some ways in terms of like it's not really sure what it's doing yeah but again it it knows that that relationship's important yes i guess yeah and and the the influence on parents you know parents as superheroes and parents as supervillains is kind of a through line of this trilogy Uh, and i think glass does a good job by letting spitzer tree clark come back and be an active role and by letting uh, Elijah's mom come back and be a big role. I think those are both really important. And then again, yeah, it doesn't know what to do with the Kevin Crumb side of that equation. So it has Anya Taylor Joy come back as Casey, who has, I want. I wanted to see more of. Doesn't but... seem to have Stockholm syndrome. Seems to like be concerned about this supervillain in the world. I mean, she seems to be following him because she's trying to make mitigate the damage he leaves in his wake. But the amount of empathy the film lets her have for him, which, while I think interesting, does kind of. We don't spend enough time with her to get a clear through line on what she's feeling. Well, that and there's a clear sort of romantic connection with the Kevin Crumb character. A little bit, yeah. You know? I mean, you know, I mean, it's. I was watching this with my son, and uh, you know, Hedwig, you know, thinks that she's his girlfriend. You know, as a nine year old does. You yes. know, we kissed that one time, which is the funniest, most hilarious nine year old kissing, etc., etc. Yeah, cetera. Um, I yeah love letting that, that cute 
him be, letting him be cute and scary is weird. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a good choice. I mean, I, I like that. Well, again, even when Casey's talking to Hedwig and Split, Anya Taylor's joy, Anya Taylor Joy's eyes are shrink wrapped in tears the entire time. She is mm-hmm. deeply afraid of Hedwig. Still, yes. she does not think it's cute, and I, I think that gets lost between Split and Glass. But in Glass, when she meets Kevin. They are, you know, holding hands. And, again, I, I I didn't read that as all that romantic. And Josiah sat next to me says, oh, so she's in love with him now? I went, oh, no, surely not. And uh, it's Hedwig that comes back and makes the accusation. Mm. So, are you with Kevin now? Mm. And I went, maybe you're right. And that's gross. Yeah, that's icky. Yeah. Doesn't play well. Um. So yeah, I'm I'm troubled by that. All but yes, yeah, so we'll circle back. Not a superhero movie. Yeah, and not a superhero movie because it does not result in destruction of New York City, uh, which is Philadelphia in this case. Which is uh, the monument is two twin towers, very very nine eleven. You said that, and I don't remember it. I thought it was just the one. I think it's one tower, but I think it's paired next to another tower. Ah, uh, okay. I so I think that. that's why the imagery is there. Gotcha. Yeah, but it, I think it's a singular tower. Gotcha. But, but yeah, this Stark is tower. this Osaka tower that runs on clean energy, just like Stark Tower in the Avengers. Like mm-hmm. Shyamalan knows what he's doing. He's actively yeah. making a choice to set up the final battle, and keeps cutting it out from. Uh, keep, keeps cutting its legs out from underneath it as we get to the actual climax of the film. Yeah, and the moment of heroism is sort of off camera, so to speak, in the in the, sort of the eye of the world. They're not doing it in front of the whole world, which is the goal that the Beast has. Yeah, which uh, seems to be the goal that Elijah Price has. Um, that those things could be done, and everyone would see them for who they are and how awesome they are and whatever. Um, it turns out, though, the goal of Elijah Price is just for people to know. They could be superheroes, which I find to be really fascinating, and that you would do sort of under-the-radar acts of kindness, under-the-radar acts of heroism, under-the-radar acts of valor. That, as an Aesop's fable moral of the story, is something I find very attractive. Well, and I also like the aspect of Shyamalan implying that even in a world with superheroes, the powers that be will prevent this goodness from shining through. Right. Society uh, abhors individuality that casts off uh, societal convention, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it says, no, we, we can't let people know about you. You break the world. You don't get to be in the spotlight. Because you don't play by the rules, right? Yeah, and I think it, while the execution of that is nonsense, as everybody in the restaurant just in the secret cult, what? what eh, I don't did, know. Is there a text chain? Well, you well you have your cult meeting, and so the waiters are in the cult too. You got to be in the group chat, and, yeah. and and then there's an appointment at the cult meeting, and you know then there's discussion. Yeah, do they we have do a Italian Google calendar. Do we do Mexican food this week? And they but there's they, always like one person that's not in the group, yeah, and they, they have, have to wait, wait till that person leaves, and then everything stops. Right, one waiter, right, or busboy. Anyway, employee. Yeah, execution of that tomfoolery aside is an interesting idea. I think it's it's really cool to again. Let you think you have one villain and say, nope, Sarah Paulson knew that they were the real deal the whole time. She has been gaslighting them because she doesn't want to kill them. She will. She's going to feel bad if she has to murder these guys because she does think they're extraordinary. She just fears what they will do to the world. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, but it, it does seem like there's this idea, though, that we are all extraordinary or extraordinary potentiates. 
and uh, that what the world is trying to do around us is to deny that that possibility is out there. Because if we realize that extraordinary potential, we would break the world. Yeah. Um, and then the status quo would be somehow upset, and that would be a bad thing. Well, and it seems to be Shyamalan pointing out that superhero movies never break the status quo, right? Yeah. They all maintain a status quo similar to the world we actually live in. And none of them go out on a limb and say, w- w- how are we going to make the world completely different? Um, a, a couple of our more recent Marvel films have tried to dabble in that. It feels like of trying to change status quos, but well, even you know, Civil War wants to play with this idea, with the idea of the Sokovia Accords and yep. Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross. But there's never any real consequence Correct. to it. I mean, it always comes back to the same old, same old. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's an interesting choice for sure. Uh, but again unceremoniously killing all your main characters in a parking lot fight is a weird choice. So I have to ask a question. Dramatically, I mean. Sam Jackson says, this is not the big, you know, whatever, showdown. This is an origin story. This isn't the limited edition. This is the origin story. Yeah, we call it back. What's the... What is... Because if the characters all die, then the origin story is of the three that are left? I guess it's the origin story for heroes at large. The idea that humanity can now recognize... That there are superior beings among us, but yeah, I wasn't quite sure of that either, uh, because of when he says it and how he says it, because we hadn't quite got to that reveal. But I don't know if that's what he's insinuating that this is the origin of superheroes on Earth, yeah, in a larger scale. It definitely is a callback to Unbreakable for sure, right? I mean, with Unbreakable being an origin story, it's, you know, there's kind of this lampshading thing of, ah, you thought Unbreakable was the origin story. Here's the real one. Um, Yeah, I I tend to agree with you, Arthur. It seems that it's, this is the origin of superheroics and superhumanity at large. But yet, as with a lot of the last third of this movie, it kind of plays confused and clunky. Yeah, yeah, I'm troubled by it. So, yeah, I don't know what else to say there. Um, do we have any other analytical threads that we want to chase down? Yeah, I, I think there is something. Again, this gets us back into the choice to depict DID a little bit. But I, I feel like it is interesting to have, as we said, this Illuminati-type group exists as mental health professionals you can't trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. Telling uh, their patients that y- you are not special um, it's interesting. It, it, it seems to be an interesting wrestling with how do you treat um, mental illness uh, in a way that is empathetic and doesn't try to make people fit into boxes. Doesn't, you know, how, at what point do you stop treating a, an illness and at what point are you trying to stifle somebody's innate u- uniqueness, right? Right. And the film seems to be interested in that a little bit. At the very least, interested in the idea that uh, misusing your place as a mental health professional is potentially the most evil thing you could do. Right. Well, right. I, I am disturbed by the idea of using that fear, though. Uh, people who yeah. need mental yes. health help tend to distrust these people anyway. And the way in which pe- we get our information in our culture is through our entertainment. Yes, yeah, brings us back to the issue Split has, right? Yeah. It is not good and, in fact, dangerous to tell media audiences at large that people with severe mental health issues are dangerous. Mm-hmm. That is not an okay thing to be telling because we're dumb. People who we're we're all dumb. We're all dumb in different areas and somebody who just doesn't know a lot about this kind of stuff is going to watch either one of these two movies and take maybe one thing as gospel and that's not good. 
and again, yeah, have it's the kind of the exact opposite problem Split has, but it is definitely in the same ballpark. Yeah, depicting mental health professionals as villains is, well, I mean, that's exactly what folks um, oftentimes you know yeah. sort of project uh, when they most need those sort of services. So, very very troubling in that that counter as well. Yeah, and it really plays a little into. The same thing we talked about with Split, right? That uh, Casey's trauma makes her a better person, a more fulfilled person. It is playing to people who have uh, a diagnosis of some kind are better, more fulfilled, more interesting people. And while there is some important work being done there in terms of destigmatizing uh, mental health, yes. there is also another danger of saying, ah, well, you're you're thing that makes you you your diagnosis is part of you uh and so if you try to treat it then you're lying to yourself and you're going to be a less creative less fulfilled version of yourself that's a dangerous message too yeah so uh, there's a lot of smart people who have written a lot of smart books about the co-occurrences of uh i think it's touched by fire or something uh, there's a book about the co-occurrence of uh historic geniuses and historic artists and uh potentially uh a bipolar uh, disorder diagnosis. So mm-hmm. the smarter people have written about this, you can go find that. But uh, it's an idea that is interesting, and it's an idea that we do need to talk about, but we got to be careful, and it should probably be the only thing you're talking about if you're going to address it. Yeah, don't mi- don't mix up it in a blender with other stuff, because yeah. then it gets very, very confusing. Other thoughts on the uh, East Rail 177 trilogy? It's a hell of a trilogy. No, I think we've... Uh... We've gotten in there. Well, let's render a verdict for the whole thing. You can't pick one. Shelf or trash? What do you say? Arthur? Trash. I I think as a trilogy, trash. I, I think there is a seminal Shyamalan work that you see, and it is none of these three films. And so, yeah, I, I can't suggest putting this one on the shelf. Fair enough, fair enough. What do you say, Dalton? Well, I had my answer until you said I had to answer for the whole trilogy, so... I'm going to have to call an audible and say trash. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I would say it's deeply interesting. Uh, there are worse ways to spend six hours, give or take. Uh, yeah, it's not shelfable. Uh, nah, I can't. Yeah. I'm with Arthur. It's just, especially Split and, un- and I almost keep saying Split and Unbreakable. Split and Glass are so confused thematically, and Glass is so dramatically uninteresting. And uh, ends on such a anti-climax. And Split, while, as we've all mentioned, is really a pretty engaging watch, is yeah. such a clusterfuck mm-hmm. in terms of its themes. Yeah, I can't. Unbreakable is not good enough to save these other two movies. It's just not. So trash. Yeah, totally agree. Trash, 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 trash. Um, I would keep Unbreakable if I could. Same. I might even keep Split if I could. Same. Because, I mean, it's a really, really good thriller. But... The, the fact that it connects to the other movies is its problem. Yeah. And so that's what diminishes it in my mind. And so, yeah, I'm with you guys. I'm a, I'm a definite trash on the trilogy as well. Sorry, M. Knight. Uh, glad we did it, though. I am, too. And again, he's, he, he keeps being one of the most interesting filmmakers working. Mm-hmm. He's, yeah. he's, he's, he's something else. All right, that's it. That's a double sode. I'm done. Sorry about that. We've had some great injustices in the past because we've really gotten on this kick where we like to do a uh, a marathon devoted to an actor. You're going to appeal to my scruples now, aren't you? We I are. Uh, and the problem with all these actor-based marathons is that they've all been men. 
and we've done oh, several of them. I can't leave. So we got to be fair. We got to be just. We got to flip the coin. So we're going to do a female-oriented actor marathon. Okay. And uh, we're going to be uh, we're going to be dreaming of one Gina Davis. I dream of Gina. I dream of Gina Davis. Truly, one of the great actresses of her time. Uh, should not have gone away. I don't know if she went away because she wasn't getting good roles or just decided she was ready to, you know, call it quits unless something really great came across her desk. Uh, I'm I'm honestly not sure. But the fact that Gina Davis is not really in movies post-98 is... At least mainstream movies. Yeah, it's yeah. a travesty. Yeah, uh, I, I assume it's that thing where she hit a probably an age point and she probably didn't get the part. Scripts. Yep. So, uh, which is a tragedy because uh, she's a delight. So good. So we are going to be diving into some of her 80s and 90s works, some of her highlights. Do we want to go ahead and uh, announce that slate right now? Yeah, we can. The slate of the first movie. Mm. Well, we're definitely announcing the first movie. It is uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly. Oh, my gosh, yes. Okay. Very excited. From there, we will uh, travel on a few years, and we're going to look at a little bitty comedy. Nobody's seen it. A League of Their Own. Yeah, no one's seen this movie. <laughs> no I one's ever heard of this movie. movie. <laughs> um, from there, we'll uh, we'll really look at sisterhood and uh, female empowerment with uh, Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise. And finally... Going to close it out with Shane Black, uh, one of the uh, great action screenwriters of our time. And we're going to look at him interrogating. We talked uh, a little bit about 90s action heroines when we talked about Tank Girl. We're going to see Shane Black... Uh, kind of deconstruct that female action heroine of the 90s with The Long Kiss Goodnight, starring uh, one Gene Davis and a returning Sam Jackson. So yeah. you only got to wait Jackson you only got to wait three weeks to get more Sam Jackson yeah. in your life. So uh, there we go. Will you uh, hang around for a couple more weeks? I will definitely hang around. I, well, you've, you've appealed to my, my, my ethics now. I'm like, we oh, had well, him at David Cronenberg. I, he didn't care about anything else. Well, no, said. I had an oversight with the lady thing. I mean, we have not done any lady actors, and that is wrong. And that, you know, we deserve to be, you know, rebuked and uh, corrected, and I'm glad we're doing that. Uh, I also feel the need to jump back in real quick and uh, mention real quick that Shane Black, while he wrote The Long Kiss Goodnight, did not direct it. It's no. directed by her then husband, Rennie Harlan, oh, which I think she is. She married Rennie Harlan? They were married for a while. I actually we're going to see her with two of her relationships because she was also with uh, one Jeff Goldblum for a period of time as yeah. well. I yeah. actually don't know that her and Rennie Harlan aren't still married. I just said then to cover my bases. We'll, uh, we'll talk about it when we get there, I guess. All righty. Well, I guess we'll do that. I cannot wait, guys. I really am. I'm very, very excited about this. So you keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid.